LightSource is available free of charge through studiolighting.net. You can support LightSource by visiting supportlightsource.com. There you can donate through the tip jar, purchase a lighting DVD, get a discount on website hosting through squarespace.com, or you can visit our affiliate links for Adorama or amazon.com where you can shop for camera gear or photography books, and a portion of those proceeds will help support LightSource. Hi, I'm Stephen Eastwood. I'm a New York-based beauty and fashion photographer, and you're listening to LightSource. And welcome to episode 79 of LightSource, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. On today's show, we're going to have an interview with Stephen Eastwood. He is a beauty, fashion, commercial photographer. He is based out of New York City and has a, a bit of an interesting story of how he got his start in the photo industry. It turns out he was on the other side of the lens and made his transition to becoming a photographer. And he is one of Canon's print masters. So he is very well experienced and has a really good discussion with us. Not to mention a hypnotist. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny how that relates to photography, but we're always coming up with different fields of study for us to look at. So here, guys will have to listen and see how that one fits in. Who knew? I know. <laughs> right, so. Well, as we were looking at topics of things to talk about on the show, yeah, obviously I'm still obsessed with my iPhone. <laughs> right. But I saw something really funny. One of the big events that happened between the recording of this and our last show was the inauguration. Huge, huge day. Millions of people show up in D.C. Lots and lots of people huddled around TV. You know, most biggest watched event. So I'm on Gizmodo and I'm looking at news stories and they have a photo. It's a beautiful photo. Guy has the best seat in the house for this inauguration that everybody in the world is watching. He's standing directly behind Obama. What is he doing? He's fiddling with his iPhone. No, that's classic. Right hand in the air, you know, big moment of history. And this guy's looking at his <laughs> iPhone for a text message or what. I, I don't yeah. know what he's doing. I'm, I'm hoping he's trying to pull up the camera to take a picture, but yeah, I don't think that he is. Yeah, he's playing a game or something like that. <laughs> he's Twittering. He's on the fifth level of Tetris. Twittering would be a legitimate thing to do in the, behind Obama. I think <laughs> that's what you OMG, OMG guess where I am <laughs> yeah that's funny man everybody's loving their iPhone because you, yeah, you the, mentioned earlier that Chase was doing something interesting with his well Chase has been posting kind of like an iPhone photo of the day on his Twitter feed nice and surprisingly I think he might take better pictures with his iPhone than I do with my 5d <laughs> But one thing that he did post that I thought was really interesting was on his blog, he actually took a time to make a post that says five tips for making great iPhone photos. And it's kind of funny because he actually took a lot of the camera basics that you think about when you're you're shooting with a camera that people probably don't think about when they're actually shooting with their camera phones. They probably think of them as that person with the hand up in the air or holding it out at arm's reach with the right. little finger button going, the thumb button going on. He kind of brings things back into thinking of it as a camera about you know like holding the camera still use it with two hands the one thing that i got out of it that was the best tip was compose the shot with your finger on the little camera button on the screen and i never thought about this until i read this with the iphone the shutter release is actually when you let go of the button oh okay so if you compose it with your finger on the camera button, figure out what your shot's going to be, and then release the button, you have a lot less movement with your hand, and you right. can get a lot more steady photos to it. 
That's good to know, man. Seriously. Yeah, that was a huge <laughs> change in the way that I take my photos. If you use standard camera routine and think of it as you're using it as a camera instead of a camera phone, you're more likely to get pretty good photos out of it. That's cool. Well, I wish I could say the same for my BlackBerry, but uh, but I can't. <laughs> you can take camera pictures with the BlackBerry yeah, too, correct? Yeah, I can. It's just they're just not that great. I have a BlackBerry Curve and they just, they're not that great. But it chases also, just this week, actually Twittering a whole photo shoot like we'd seen some other guys do. I think Mark Wallace did that a couple of months ago, and it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, that's it's really amazing how technology is making its way more and more into the daily life of photographers. It's just good. Yeah, it's nice to see the social networking reaching these people. And I, I think the one with Chase Jarvis is that he was on a, a D3X. Yep. And I think he said it was his first shoot with it. That's so he's cool. going to, it's pretty nice that Canon's trusting him to do this because I think he said that whatever happens is going to be out there, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, software bugs. And, you know, also I think he used a holy expletive moments, <laughs> I think is what it said. So, That's you know, it's cool. going to be the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever happens, happens, and you're going to get it real time. So that'll be really nice because it's not going to be a review where you have time to filter it and think about it. And exactly. so you're going to get gut reactions as though you were standing there with him and he says, wow, this is really great or wow, this is really bad this way. So that'd be right. something to watch. No doubt. Another thing that I thought was interesting this week that I picked up on Twitter too was our buddy Mark Wallace from Snap Factory posted some videos. It's been a few days since the show, but he was at Imaging USA and he took a whole bunch of really cool HD video of different interviews that he held with guys at the booth for different products. The Siconic booth and some of the other lighting manufacturers that he got a chance to talk to. So that's kind of cool. That was cool. I like that he twittered that the actual pronunciation is Chimera. <laughs> yeah, that was classic. So the debate's over. He was there. That's, That's right. what it is. We'll move on from there. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mark has some really good stuff. You had uh, one other link that you had sent me, a new book that's coming out. Yeah, there's a new book by Louis Giglio called Awakening. And I think that Jeremy Cowart, when he was on the show, mentioned that he was going to be traveling with these guys as they visited all over the world multiple continents for three months to videotape and photograph the Passion World Tour. Now the book is about ready and it features a ton of Jeremy's photography and it looks amazing. It's going to come out in the spring, but they did put a website up about the book and it has some samples of his images and I thought it was worth mentioning. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, even if you're not interested in the book, the website's definitely worth taking a look at. It's uh, awakeningthebook.com. The site has a really good design and a really interesting video that showcases the photography in the book. So it's definitely cool to check out. Right. I think Jeremy and his crew did an awesome job. I'm excited to check the book out when it arrives. Yeah, likewise. Well, we should get into our interview here with Stephen Eastwood. If you want to follow along at home, you can check it out at stepheneastwood.com. On this edition of The Light Source, we have with us this evening Stephen Eastwood. He is a beauty and fashion photographer and retoucher from New York City. From his website, it also has him listed as currently one of the Canon print masters. An amazing portfolio. And you can follow along with us at stepheneastwood.com as we're getting into the interview. Stephen, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into this a little bit, tell us a little bit about the type of work that you do. Uh, we have so many different types of photographers with us. We have commercial photographers and all kinds of different stuff. Tell us a little bit about what you specialize in and what makes your style unique. 
Huh, unique is a tough <laughs> word to even ever, <laughs> ever describe or, or try to emulate. But more or less, I'm a commercial beauty and fashion photographer. And when I say that, I don't gear toward high fashion or editorial. I gear strictly toward advertising and mainstream fashion and beauty as in cosmetic and cosmetic type ads primarily. So that's my main focus and has been for at least the past five years, probably always was kind of my focus, but over the past five years, it's pretty much dominated what I do. Now, Stephen, you have kind of an interesting story, which I'm curious to hear about. What would you say it is that made you want to go into this industry? The one you're probably referring to is more my background. I had done some fitness modeling way back when, when I was younger, and that always struck my, my interest. And of course, being around models, you start to do and get involved more in photography and that aspect of it. So I kind of geared myself that way. And I guess uh, in a way, I had a leg up in that I was working with photographers at the time and with models that knew what they were doing. So that kind of helped a lot, especially in the pre-digital age where you, you didn't have the immediate access to feedback that we have now without going through a lot of polaroids. Mm. That was one of the bigger starting points for me. So you began as a model then? In a roundabout way, yeah. I was fitness modeling and then started photography and then deviated away in between going to school for other things and then came back to it and entered right back into the same area that I kind of left. But that was what pushed me in this direction in the first place was working with models, knowing models, knowing photographers, you know, and being involved in the industry from the other side of the camera. I got more involved in it from the, you know, the control freak aspect of me started saying, well, you know, if I was taking the pictures, I could do more and have more control over what's going on and create images the way I thought they should be. Right. Not that the photographers <laughs> I was working with weren't doing a great job, but, you know, there's always something that you look at and you're just surprised the day after saying, that's not quite what I would have done <laughs> right. or how I would have envisioned it. So I have that male fixer mentality. So I was like, I could fix that and make it my own, you know, what I, what I envisioned. So that, that really pushed me. Do you think from being on the other side of the lens that it gives you a, a different insight to actually working with and directing people that other photographers that are used to just being on the backside of the lens might not be used to? Yes and no. You know, it, it does in some ways in that you understand that it's not just like, you know, anybody can stand there and do it correctly, especially when you have somebody that's very specific in their lighting and, you know, their, their shadowing and very specific in what they want, as opposed to just like, you know, bounce around and I'll shoot, which is becoming a little bit more, what I'm seeing becoming a little bit more common in a lot of the commercial aspects today. But when you're dealing with someone that's specific, they don't always understand that just because I know what I'm seeing from the, you know, behind the camera lens, that other person or the model or the two models, they don't necessarily understand and see what I'm seeing. And I used to have photographers that would be working with myself and other models saying, you know, that's just not right. And it's like, okay, that's not helpful. You have to tell me what exactly it is would be right. Not just, you know, what you're doing is wrong. That doesn't help. You know, turn the other way. Which way? There's lots of ways, you know? Right. So it does help in that aspect in that you understand that part of it that, you know, the models have to somewhat, you have to explain to them what you're doing and what you're seeing so that they have an understanding of what it is that they're doing right or wrong and how they can be more beneficial to the shoot. Right down to today, and you know, nowadays I actually at times put the model behind the camera to, especially for beauty shoots, because they're very much 
still life type shoots, you know, when you're doing close-up beauty. And they don't understand when I'm saying, you know, tilt your head a little bit and tilt it a little bit too much, a little bit back, a little bit. They see me as I barely moved. And I'm like, from my point of view, it's a huge angle difference. Mm. And until they actually look through a very long lens and see just how dramatic that shift is from that perspective, they just don't understand. They just kind of get frustrated. Once they see it, they're like, wow, it makes a huge difference from being an okay picture to a really bad image to a really amazing image. And I barely felt like I moved. And it's like, right. You know, so you, it's one of those things that sometimes it's good to do with, especially younger models, you know. Right. So I do that a lot. For me, it's interesting to think that you started doing modeling, got interested in photography. Were you always in L.A.? No, I'm born and raised in New York, actually. And then I bounced back and forth between, you know, California and New York. I pretty much am still dominating New York. Okay. So I stay as much as I can in New York. Come wintertime, I kind of gravitate more right. toward L.A. But uh, spring, summer, and fall, I do my best to be in New York because I, I'm very much a New Yorker. Excellent. So, so you, you started your career in New York then, I guess. Was it commercial from the beginning or, or not so much? Um, when I started, was more. Uh, I started on the glamour end, mainly because I was dealing with fitness modeling and fitness models. So a lot of the girls were not really fashion material, but more sexy glamour types, especially from the male perspective. That's the first thing we're looking into is you know how we make them look sexy. And And from there, I began to realize that my books were becoming very much wow factor books, but not so much because of me, but because they were sexy girls. So people would look at it and every picture was like, wow, that's hot. Wow, that's hot. And when I finally got frustrated with that myself and started to gravitate toward other types of photography, I started to realize that certain things don't lend itself to that wow shot as readily as glamour and then beauty. Uh, A lot of fashion is story-oriented, and the problem with story-oriented imagery was you need several of them for someone to get the full effect, so they don't stop on every page necessarily and say, wow. Whereas with glamour, a lot of times they do, at least men do. And with beauty, most of the time they do stop and say, wow, to almost every image. It's like a story amongst itself, you know, and that was what really forced my hand into beauty because my ego didn't like the non-wow factor. <laughs> you know, right. it, it, it could, I'm that, that honest that I'll tell you that my, my ego didn't like the fact that people would not say wow on every page. So I kind of geared what I do to make them say, wow, and not have to like flip three or four pages to get the concept of what's going on and then go, oh, that's cool. Okay, right. That's the impression, by the way, that I think your portfolio gives, even the one that you have on your website. is just a lot of wow images. I don't know how else to say it. That's a really, really good way to put it. But what types of areas did you focus on when you decided, all right, I need to get a wow. Did you look at color or posure or lighting? What are the... <sighs> things that you really worked on? Um, When I made the shift from the easy wow factor, as I like to call it, which is the glamour end of it, to forcing people to say wow for other reasons, I started to look into everything. You know, contrast and shadow, I think, is a big portion of it because the image is really defined by the shadow. So that was a big aspect. Just very well-lit images don't always have the same wow factor as when someone has to seek something out in it. 
Okay. So that was one area of it. The other one was things that focus people's attention in a way that they didn't necessarily plan on. You know, beauty in particular is one that even though we're, we see people on a regular basis, you don't see them that close up. Their eyes are not always that crisp. That, as simple as it is, still makes people say, wow. Right. Um, as a photographer, I'm always fascinated by the fact that people are so, and photographers even, are so amazed at a close-up shot of an eye because it's it's just so wow to them. And I'm like, it's nothing really unusual. It's just get closer. But how often do you see an eye full page? You know? right. So that makes a lot of people just stop and say, wow, for very little reason other than it's it's just something they don't really see or take the time to get that close and look at. So that's the thing, you know, I, I started to gravitate toward things that created that wow factor in people. And then color always, you know, starts to play a, an important part, especially when you're doing, doing ads because we have to fit seasons. So you can't just do anything you want when you want. You know, there's clothing ads and cosmetic ads that you just want to do something in bright red and th that's not the color of the season. Yeah, right. So you kind of get locked into what they give you. You know, now we're in browns and fawns and you're like, uh, um, but that's, that's <laughs> not what I'm feeling. You, <laughs> learn, you learn to work within your tools that they give you. So I try to do my best. Well, I read in a magazine article actually, which featured you, a couple of interesting quotes I picked out. One of the things that I thought it was interesting to hear you say was that there's sort of a balance or almost a, a spectrum between artistic and marketable. Where do you see yourself falling and could you just lay that out a little bit for some of our listeners? Yeah, one of the things that, especially since I've been with the Canon Printmaster program and everything, I have a lot of photographers contacting me, asking for input on their work. And I have a lot of people who want to assist and understand how to get more work in the industry and things. And one of the things I strongly recommend to some of them is that they focus their shooting on what is marketable as opposed to being totally artsy and creative. And where that seems to create the dichotomy in this industry is we seem to say, well, a photographer that's really creative and talented is going to be successful. And unfortunately, that is not necessarily the case. In fact, sometimes it's quite the opposite. They can be too artistic to be really marketable or have such a, a tight niche market in what they do, no matter how well they do it, that they can't get the work. And my background was really not artistic. It was much more rational, logical, you know, fact-based thought process and, and everything. So I don't consider myself very creative and I still don't. I'm more of a problem solver. I let people throw problems at me and that's exactly how I work. It's like, what is it you want to sell? They tell me and then I figure out how to get someone to stop and, and get that point across somehow. Mm or make them stop and stare long enough to let the words on the page sink in. That doesn't necessarily equate to the artistic mentality of, you know, I have this vision I want to create. That That's great when you're creating art, and art is wonderful in and of itself, and I still, every now and then, would love to go do it on my, my own, to be honest. I wish I had more time to do just that. But when you're a client that literally comes in with a product and a demographic and area that they're going to be marketing, which has very specific demographics, it may have nothing to do with what you feel or what you think is your vision for the week. Right. And your job is 
not to be artistic. It's to create something that sells for them that day. And that's a big thing that I find photographers lack until they start doing a lot more real actual work. When they're building their book, they're not looking in that direction. They're looking to create that artistic, get them and make everyone stop and drool over your book. And I say, yes, that's great as personal work. But when you're showing a client, they've got to see to a huge extent what it is they want to have you produce so that they feel confident that you can produce what they need. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily go together with the artsy aspects of it. So that's exactly what I was hoping you would you would touch on. I, I think it's very fascinating what you're kind of saying in a way is that in order to be successful, especially in this industry, it seems that you kind of have to shift the mentality somewhat. And and it's in a market where folks tend to be thinking I'm just going to do the most unusual, crazy type images, and there's all sorts of exotic makeup and stuff. But you're kind of saying that's great if you tame it with, you know, how would this fit inside of a magazine with copy and, you know, that sort of thinking. Is that important then? Definitely. And not only that, it's, it's who are you marketing to? Fitting in a magazine is great if the magazine is your market. If you're going after commercial clients that produce, you know, like a Kmart or Walmart or Dillard's, they're not using any of it. So you have to look at what do they have, what do they use as ads, and you kind of have to show them that, which unfortunately is not what most people are real, you know, want to put forward. I certainly don't. It's actually hard to even find that type of stuff on my sites. Um, clients get it, and that's pretty much it because it's not wow factor stuff. It's, you know, Oprah-type <laughs> right. magazine ads, and that's very normal. I mean, I do a lot of uh, Ladies Home Journal and Oprah, and, you know, those ads are not the wow pages, and yet that's what the client wants, and that's what they're paying for. And if I gave them wow shots and on occasion, I have, and they look at it and go, that's great, yeah can't use it and they turn to the next one which is a very plain (laughs) simple shot and that's exactly what they want and you know you you begin to learn that okay on occasion because i'm already in the situation and the wow shot presents itself i'll shoot it and try to see if they'll bite but you don't take it personally when they look at it and go yeah it's great yeah yeah next and find (laughs) something that you just look at and say that's kind of embarrassed i shot it but if that's what the client wants then you did your job so that's something you have to realize who is your market and who are you advertising yourself to and then you look at what they're using to advertise sometimes they're looking to change which happens on occasion and when they do Unfortunately, what I found more often than not is people think they're going to see me and jump with that change. And it's more often they find somebody that's consistently producing something that's like what they're looking to change into. Right. <laughs> not, not the other way around. <laughs> okay. So you're better off showing them what they've been consistently wanting because that at least gives them the confidence that, you know, if we hire him tomorrow, he'll be able to produce it. And next week, he'll be able to produce what we want on demand. I hope that's clear to some people. Yeah, I think it is. Steve, what portion of a working photographer's work is going to be like portfolio type versus versus just... Like a bread and butter? Yeah, bread and butter. Wow. I mean, is that a balance or... Ah, working, <laughs> working photographer in commercial um, area, <laughs> right. I would say about 90% of their work will be bread and butter. Okay. You know, I don't want to say embarrassing, but stuff that they're not putting in the forefront of their website, so to speak. Whereas the other 10%, if they're lucky, (laughs) is getting paid for to do creative or things that they are proud of. But a lot of times, unless they're looking to really try to niche market themselves in high fashion, they're doing that type of stuff for almost free or on their own as their own personal work. And 
they hope that that starts to get them the clients that are looking for that once they've built consistency in their style. And then they show that book around in addition to their typical commercial books. And eventually, that's exactly how you move. I mean, I've done that myself where clients have booked me for basic sweater catalog, you know, on type work. And upon looking at all my other stuff over the two or three years we're shooting, they finally get around to saying, you know, we would like to try something different. Okay. And it's it's kind of like bombarding them with my own different things that has made them jump that way. Excellent. But a lot of that stuff was not necessary, especially my more crazy stuff was not always paid work. It was more models I knew and, you know, model tests. You know, we still test on occasion when I'm bored and going insane. <laughs> I mean, just need a creative outlet. And magazine work, which pays, but certainly doesn't pay anywhere near advertising rates at all. Right. So... Like I said, if you're getting that 10% of solid paid work doing portfolio-worthy work, that's really, really good. Okay. And one should be very happy with that. From your perspective, how important is it for once you've been in the mainstream commercial areas to continue to to pursue your artistic stuff? For one, sanity probably very important <laughs> for longevity in the business it's probably very important because you get very comfortable doing the commercial stuff because literally i don't want to say it's a nine to five job but it's almost that simple it's i know exactly what i'm going to do i know exactly what the models are going to do i know what the hair and makeup is going to look like i know pretty much what the clothes are going to look like everything is not quite cookie cutter but very close that there's no real thought I don't have to start rethinking my lighting. You know, right. there's no. What are we going to do with the the makeup and how crazy can we go and what colors? It's all very simple, and that's good in some ways. It makes your life simple when you don't want to have to think. You can just show up if you're you're sick. You can just show up and still accomplish it quite well. Um, <laughs> if you're distracted, you can still accomplish it quite well. But you really don't grow, and unless you're accepting of that. You know, which I, I really wasn't, which is kind of part of why I liked photography. I like constant change. I like challenges. I like different, um, having something different to do all the time, meeting different people all the time, especially on the terms that we meet. It's usually a very upbeat and, you know, short-lived relationship, but it's it's generally speaking a very happy relationship. Models are very, very happy being models. Everybody involved is talking about what's good in their life because that's part of the fun of being in the industry. Whereas some other jobs, once you're working with someone long-term, they start to get into that monotonous, uh, all the problems start coming up every day. That's what you discuss at work. Right. Um, my line of work, every day, all we discuss is you know how great everything is. That's cool. And it's, it is really nice and fun that way because you get to meet people from all over the world, you know, models especially are from all over, but makeup, hair people, producers, clients come from all over, so they're from all different backgrounds. And our relationship, whether it's, you know, over a longer term or very short-lived, is usually a very upbeat and happy relationship that picks up and goes really well. So it's a fun job, and it's something that I'm I'm happy to be able to say I enjoy going to work, sometimes more than not working. (laughs) It's like the alternative is, you know, staying home and and having to figure out what to do. This, I get to go and hang out and almost that fun. You know, it's like, what are we doing today? We're hanging out. That's great. (laughs) And it's it's all about meeting new people and stuff too. It's great to do that. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, earlier you were talking about uh, another quote that I, that I found that I thought was really interesting is something you said basically that 
you've either got an eye for imagery or you don't. Do you still feel that way? And if so, how does someone know if they have it? How do you get a sense whether or not you really have that eye? I don't think the person themselves will ever know because in my opinion, nobody ever would show you a picture that they didn't think was somewhat good. (laughs) Not one that they took in the hopes of you saying, wow, you're amazing. So from that aspect, they're not always unbiased. They will know because there's a difference between friends and family and coworkers and things that are kind of patting you on the back saying, oh, great work, great work. And when you start getting into the industry in any real level, even on forums online, some forums you know right away, any picture you put up, everybody's going to go, great work. Whereas there are other forums that, you know, Avedon would get ripped apart. Right. <laughs> and, and that's, so you kind of have to take advantage and be open to, receptive, and looking for that which are three things that, you know, a lot of photographers aren't. Being open to it is, is one thing. That's tough in and of itself. But actively looking for it is the more important part. If you have to go looking where people are actively tough on it, okay. because when you send your book to clients, they will not even bother opening it. They're that, and sometimes more brutal. So if you don't want that happening when you're embarrassing yourself in front of a real client, you need to look out for places where people are that, brutal and then be open to the fact that just because I think it's great doesn't mean it's any good. I'm obviously biased. I shot it. If enough people say it's horrible, maybe there's something to it. You can learn the technical aspect of photography very easily. Whether or not you can make something look good is something that you inherently have to have to a huge extent because how do you know when to press the button? Right. You know, I mean, I can point the camera and set up lights for somebody else, but how do they know when to press the button? It's got to look good, and that's a very subjective thing. It's one of those things I never want to say that to somebody that, you know, they're not talented. It's just their talent lies in an area that may have a limited appeal. <laughs> right. That's a good way so, to put it. You know, and, yeah, it and that, well, well, it's true. With the large variety of stuff out there, there are plenty of talented photographers that don't find fashion at all nice or attractive or good. There are plenty that don't find glamour to be at all um, quality work. There are plenty that don't find artsy, you know, black and white nudes to be at all talent. There are plenty of people that don't find goth or fetish work are all talented. And meanwhile, those things all still flourish, which means there are plenty of people who do find that to have some value inherently and do still think that that's good work somehow. Right. What you have to be is more realistic in terms of what market are you going after and do you fill it? If you're trying to go after the mainstream Kmart market and your vision is goth, it's probably not going to work out well for you. <laughs> it's an excellent uh, perspective on that. Thank you. You know, but I always love when I see somebody's work and go, God, I wish I shot that. Right. Because it just makes me feel like there's so much more I can accomplish. The day I, I can't find anything else I wish I had shot is the day I'm, I'm going to retire completely. Because <laughs> what, are, what is there to do? Absolutely. Where do I go from there? You know, so Stephen, you work with all sorts of models from all over the world, some of them not necessarily professional. Are there interesting tips that you might have for for working with those sorts of folks who aren't dealing on a daily basis with professional photographers? My background, where I said I left, you know, fitness modeling and didn't went to school and did other things. My background is just psychology, and um, I was teaching medical and clinical hypnosis. Oh wow! Jeez. So my background was talking. Uh, so, well, now I have to ask since you mentioned it. 
Does the, the hypnosis help you for, you know, working with models at all that are being difficult? <laughs> it certainly does. You know, it, not just the hypnosis. First of all, it makes people fascinated and they start getting very involved. Whether they believe in it or not, it's something they want to talk about. So that alone breaks the ice with a lot of people who otherwise might be having a bad day. But one of the things that it does, if you don't call it hypnosis, people don't really get paranoid about it and have any misconceptions of it. A lot of the things you can do to relax people and get them comfortable and, you know, get the expressions you need in someone that is not really expressional, so to speak, work wonders. Uh, And a lot of the other things you learn are a lot of tricks. I work with a lot of younger models. And when I say younger, it's like for fashion, it's it's about normal. But 13, 14, 15, coming out of Brazil or Kiev, wow. and they don't necessarily have the range of expression and experience. There's also certain things you don't want to necessarily say outright to them, and it wouldn't go across well. But when you want them to have a really sexy come-hither look, it's kind of hard to get that across in a politically correct way to a a 12-year-old that barely speaks your language, if at all. Whereas it's much easier to have them think back and remember the smell of, you know, cookies baking in the oven because the expression they get on their face is identical. That's amazing. (laughs) And and it's a lot of things like that that works with uh, older adults also, but, but it works great with people who don't have... You know, I mean, you get a 19-year-old and you go, you know, imagine um, that look you get, that flirting look you get when you're trying to, you know, get a guy from across the bar to pay attention. (laughs) That's easy. When you say it to a 12-year-old from a farm in Brazil, (laughs) it doesn't work out so well. Just, I have no they idea. just look at you funny. That's amazing. I, right. I hadn't thought of that. And, and, and if they do try it, it's kind of like, you know, well, I normally would just run up and kick them in the shin, you know? And it's like, all right, not quite. <laughs> that's so they have, oh, that's... they have some of the other things to fall back on really helps. <laughs> it really does on in those occasions. You learn some other nicer ways of getting that look across. Some very, very practical advice. Well, shifting gears a little bit, um, earlier you were talking about like shadow and contrast and all that being very important in your work. From a technical aspect of things, what sorts of modifiers do you find yourself gravitating towards? I'm, I'm going to guess that you probably don't use softboxes as much as you do other uh, accessories. I, yeah, I don't use softboxes as much as I used to years ago. I still find I use a beauty dish and grid fairly often, for beauty at least, uh, most of the time. and um, half body or three quarter body, I'll, I'll still stick with beauty dish and grid probably around 50% of the time. The other 50% goes from really the whole gamut. I like to grid almost anything and everything I can with the very few exceptions. And those would be Fresnels, which I don't grid. Uh, that would kind of defeat the right. whole Fresnel point. Yeah, because they're all focusable. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, stick lights, I don't. Any globe that's going to be visible in the image, I wouldn't, and any any bizarre, like um, sometimes I use, I have LEDs that I use on occasion, and Kino flows every now and then, although most of the things that people think are Kinos on my site are either fiber optic or flash tube based, even my round light that I have that nowadays they make nice big fluorescent round tubes. When mm-hmm. I first got that, it was actually had flash tubes in it so oh nice it was an actual flash yeah that was prior to having good clean high iso (laughs) so (laughs) you know i wanted them as much light as i could get right but those i don't grid everything else i kind of grid i use a lot of harder reflectors seven inch and up to a 
20 inch, I think, and everything in between. Well, before we get too far away from beauty dishes, we get common questions on our forum and people asking about how to use them in different instances. Now, you said about you do not typically use them if you're going more than like a three-quarter body shot. Yeah, almost never if I'm doing more than that, unless I'm kind of using it to overpower the sun outside, at which point I just use it as a big, you know, a replacement sun. Right. Because it's getting farther away from the subject, it's getting a little too contrasty, is that... Yeah, it, well, it's becoming more of a point source, which defeats the point of using a, a beauty dish. There's so many other things you could be doing at that point. And most of the beauty dishes out, I have everything from Broncolo to Spiritron. Um, Spiritron actually is one of my favorite still to this day. But I have Broncolo ones, I have Profoto ones, I have Hensel ones. I think I have an Illichrome one, which is a little small for me, and I have Molas. They all have their own sweet spot. None of them really have a sweet spot further than like six feet. And most of those sweet spots are closer to like between three and five feet, which is part of, I guess, why they call them beauty dishes. They're they're made to kind of be in closer and tighter. And when you start moving it further away, it loses the appeal of a beauty dish over pretty much anything else. Might as well just, you know, have an umbrella. The only real benefit to the beauty dish is it's a bit more controllable if you grid it than an umbrella would be. But, you know, further away, I, I never see why someone would use it. Except, like I said, outside I use it, and and literally the reason I use it outside is umbrellas would just be too cumbersome in wind. You know, uh, the hard (laughs) metal dish is uh, still like a sail in the wind, but a little bit easier to hold down and keep control of. And looking through your portfolio, it's evident that you really do take advantage of the harder types of light in a lot of cases, I I would say, even though in particular, I'm curious about your use of like backlight and rim lights. Is that something that you tend to do a lot? And if so, what's your favorite way of doing do. that? As bad as this sounds on occasion, when people ask, I tend to use more lights than needed, mainly because <laughs> I have them available to me. Right. Um, and I don't mean more lights as an overall effect. I mean, more so, you know, even when I do some rim lighting, where I have in the past and still do when I need to do like a rim or backlighting with one, two or three lights, I have also done pretty much the same job with up to six rim lights because it's just easier to completely have two on each side, one above and, you know, one slightly behind to create a nice glow around, which is way overkill, except when you have that many lights sitting in the studio anyway. You might as well turn them on, right? Why not? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it, it makes life easier than having to figure out and keep manipulating placement it's easier to just put them so that each one is gridded and pointed exactly and covering a specific area. And then when people ask, and I'm like, you're asking me what I did, or as opposed to what you should do having three lights, <laughs> right. you, know, you, could, you can make it look the same. It's just going to be placement issues are going to be a little bit more critical in your aspect than they were in mine. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I feel bad telling people because it's it's like one of those things where I don't want to be outright telling them what's not true. I use sometimes 11 lights to do something that you could do with three. Just was much easier for 11 lights than it was for right. three. But at the same time, I don't want to scare them off and say, you know, you need 11 lights. You don't at all. <laughs> right. But I do like separation. I do like having a um, rim light or backlight or at least a hair light to create some separation usually mainly because it, it does add a little bit more flair and makes it a little bit more unusual, which to photographers is not as impactful because we're used to it and understand all that to commercial masses, so to speak, which is who the commercial 
advertising goes to. They're not used to seeing backlit people. Right. You know, it's not normal for us, and they ignore it. So when they do see images that are backlit or people that anything out of the norm, it makes them more in tune to say, wow, something is unusual, and look at it. Right. And since that is my real market, I still aim right toward that and say, well, if you can take advantage of that as simple as it is, why not take advantage of it? It's just one more thing that creates in the buying public that little perception of, wow, let me look here. Something unique um, is going on here. Exactly what yeah. I'm trying to do. Yeah, and it's and it's as simple, you know, simple as a backlight. So why not take advantage of that? Sure. You know, to photographers, like I said, we're so accustomed to it that it's not anything that makes us stop and say, "Wow, we're we're thinking, why do they use four lights?" You know, <laughs> but um, but the average person stops and goes, "Wow, look at that." I was kind of curious. Also, do you tend to use gels, and if so, you know, when do you do that? I'll admit I used to use them far more often than I do now that I'm digital, mainly because of, of constraints of clients changing their mind more randomly nowadays that everything is digital and retouched as heavily as it is. It used to be that we would light it exactly how we want it, color and all. So if you wanted a warmer on the hair, which is something I still t- tend to do, I at least have a, a quarter warm or usually a half warm or a half CTO on hair lights. but it used to be that if you wanted the rim light to be warm, you would rim it warm. Anything we would do exactly with gels, and I still like that. And especially now that I'm getting more into video and commercials, I'm getting back into it more often. But a lot of my clients had started changing from, oh, yeah, we want it to be nice and glowy warm to, oh, no, you know what, we prefer it to be blue. And you start to realize that to have the leeway, you should shoot it as clean as possible and then adjust it later for the whatever shift they have in their, their mindset. But most of my work tends to be on the warmer side to begin with. Okay. For a long time, when people go, you know, what makes yourself different than other people? I would say it's, it's the way I, I think things should look. Not necessarily the way I necessarily see them, but the way I think it should look. And that's probably, like I said, I'm, I like to fix things on occasion. So whatever the image is, I try to fix it to the way I would like it to have looked, okay. whether or not that's what it looked like. And I think I'm geared very much to that warmer tones. I, I'm not big on daylight, but I am big on like that sun color. <laughs> so right. so I, I am big on, on the warm tones, which is definitely part of my style. Not that I haven't done very cold and you know accurate colors on occasion, but the majority, I would say, of my work tends to gear itself toward the warm tones. So does that mean that you do a lot of your own retouching? I don't do as much as I used to, but I still do a lot of my own retouching. Even when I'm not doing my own final retouching, I do still to this day do the initial retouch so that anyone who is going to retouch knows what I wanted, how I wanted it. That might be changing shadow lines to contour faces or changing entire body shapes if you know that that was needed or face shapes, you know, eye color, skin tones, things like that, which to a big enough extent is like I might as well just finish the retouching at that point. Right. But I do still, even if I'm not, provide like basically a proof to go with it of anything just so they know what I had in mind. I used to shoot more contrasty than I do now. Now I shoot more flat because it gives me more latitude. The more you begin to retouch, the more you realize that we would like to have more latitude because we can always take it away. 
unfortunately, what that does is create a typical flat image in camera, which works out to be better in the end. But the, if the retoucher is not you, they don't know what you wanted. Oh, right. If they just fix flaws and make it all flawless, it's not quite what I wanted when I wanted deeper contours and shadows to be, you know. So I still do that. I'll do a quick run through, fix blemishes and any skin tone variation and contouring and shadowing and then provide them with that. Or I end up just doing it a lot of the times. <laughs> You're almost all done anyway. Just <laughs> keep going. Yeah, pretty much. That, that, that's usually what happens. It, right. it really comes down to you know volume. And we're doing like past week and the next two or three weeks, I'm shooting almost every day. So the volume alone won't allow me to do as much as I normally did. I'm going to be running through like quick retouches to show exactly tonal range and, and shadowing and contouring in general, but I'm not going to do much skin retouching at a deep level. Okay. And the retouchers are going to just run through once they pick out which pictures are going to finally be used. They'll have a, a guideline as to exactly what I, I had in mind. Sounds reasonable. A couple of things I wanted to mention before we kind of wrap up here, Stephen. One of them is I wanted to thank you for the amount of effort you put into your website. I was looking at the bio and press section and some of the information that you've included in there, you just answered a tremendous amount of questions from photographers. And I think that's awesome. So I'm going to try to point that out to our listeners. They can go to your website and check that out. I'm always surprised when people actually get through reading it because I said, you know, it it would scare me off to be honest. (laughs) I get to that long page and I'm like, whoa, that scares me off. I I get a lot of feedback from people who do read through it and they say that themselves a lot, which is part of why I I put it all up. I know I would have loved to have been able to read something that answered a lot of my questions when I first started. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a great a great thing for photographers as a resource, and we're going to definitely link to that that portion of your website, stephenistwood.com slash tutorials. Just want to thank you for that, and thank you again for taking some time to, to hang out with us tonight on the interview. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we have for this episode of LightSource, the brightest podcast on the internet. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.